Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I am Ben Duncan, and this is a place where prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana share their stories. In today's episode, I am joined by David Sinclair. David is the founder of CROXCRM and has a wealth of experience in the world of ISVs. David worked at Salesforce in the role of regional VP for ISV Sales, so he shares some insight into the role and how he partnered with ISVs to launch successful products on the App Exchange. David explains some of the key factors he identified behind successful product businesses and shares where some companies go wrong. David talks through the role of the CRO, a role that's emerging now and is more prevalent in the US, but is definitely emerging more recently in ANZ. And he also explains how he sees some companies misusing Salesforce and how they could use it better and how Salesforce themselves use the Salesforce platform. I hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here. No, it's absolutely our pleasure. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to unpick this uh, this story because um, you're the first person we've had on the, the podcast that, that truly knows the world of ISVs and especially the Salesforce ISV space. So yeah, really keen to hear more about your journey and the work that you've done. So so what I'd like to understand, I guess, first is is a bit more about your early career before the Salesforce world and, and when you first got exposed to the whole ISV model. Yeah, it's probably when I first moved into the enterprise software space. Um, that was back in 2000. Not a great time to enter the software gig with the uh, collapse of the dot-com, but I worked for a, a company called BEA Systems that was eventually acquired by Oracle. And um, my role sort of shifted in there from being sales guy to being more of a territory territory manager. And when I was then responsible to drive revenue through any channel, direct, indirect, and with different partnerships. So the ISB angle came where we we found that quite a large number of enterprise software companies, guys like PeopleSoft, actually use the BEA platform as their core platform for their products. So they were in fact independent software vendors developing on a platform that provided them the chassis and the motor to build their car. Uh, and what developed out of that was me being involved in finding new software vendors to build on the platform. They were headquartered in APAC and then working out the right commercial model for them to use the technology as part of their part of their solution. So that was sort of my my journey to the ISV realm. When the first code was written, computer code was written, other software companies started using that code. So effectively they were independent software vendors using other companies' code to build better products. So that's sort of my journey started back in early two thousand. Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of people think like the ISV world is unique to Salesforce. Um, and obviously, as you've explained, it started way, way before Salesforce started building the app exchange and, and making that a marketplace for partners. But how have you seen over the years um, Salesforce's ISV ecosystem compared to other technologies, you know, the, the SAPs or, or the, the Amazons of this world? I think it certainly has accelerated across all the cloud platforms, SaaS vendor, that, that whole ability to give software companies easy access to a development platform has certainly accelerated the the number, the breadth and the depth of ISV independent software vendors. So so Salesforce is very their strategy was very contained around their customers, driving trying to drive value from an ecosystem to the customers where third party people would build additive solutions on top of the core SaaS platform. 
But if you look at the companies like AWS and not so much SAP, they provide platform as a service, which is different to us than a software as a service for organizations to build applications and assemble the components to to build B2C and B2B applications. And if you think if you think of the, the total number of true ISVs, there are far more on platforms like AWS uh, and Google and obviously Microsoft with Azure than there would be on the Salesforce platform just because Salesforce's platform is centric around their CRM go-to-market where AWS, Microsoft, Google is really around their um, platform that provides many, many different capabilities. From my perspective, it's really around the long tail of that ISV ecosystem is much larger in the, in the sort of the AWS side than it would be in that Salesforce side. You joined Salesforce a while ago and you were there for a number of years, but throughout that journey, what was what was your role? What were your responsibilities? And also then when you progressed into that leadership space, what were your team delivering? I mean, I was one of the first people in APAC that moved into an ISV role. So our job was to recruit, onboard and manage a technology and a contractual relationship between a third-party software vendor and Salesforce. That was determined effectively by a revenue relationship that was, and this is all public information, that was part of the App Exchange Partner Program. And in that program, there was a number of different contractual models where an ISV would pay Salesforce a revenue share to use the Salesforce technology. It was a very forward-thinking model. Um, A lot of the um, other ISV platform vendors say you need to pre-buy consumption. This was very much, you only recorded revenue when the ISV actually sold their product. So at the very early stages, what I did as an individual and then as a manager, we were actually trying to help these companies become successful SaaS vendors because we only got the revenue when they sold their product. So it became a very tight relationship between ourselves as part of the, the Salesforce, whole Salesforce business. And the ISPs that could deliver those incremental or additive solutions to Salesforce customers and sometimes even to net new customers using the platform to drive an independent revenue line for Salesforce, but actually to grow the footprint of the Salesforce platform across the globe. So so really like a true partnership in that, you know, you need to make them successful for your team to be successful for Salesforce to have success from the app exchange function. It's like every company we dealt with was like a little Salesforce. They had to sell their product to be successful. They have all the same requirements and pressures and mechanisms for them to be a successful SaaS company as Salesforce had done. Just Salesforce was 20 years ahead of them. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess at the, the very early stages, uh, they're, they're all planning to get to the same point of Salesforce in some way, shape or form, maybe not the same scale, but to have the same success and reach. I worked with hundreds of incredible individuals that had great vision and a great opportunity to um, to execute, but they were always trying to be that the next Salesforce or the next successful SaaS business. And primarily the companies we worked with were all B2B. They would only always sell their applications to a, another business, not to a consumer. Yeah, makes sense. During your time at Salesforce, you would have seen companies come and either find success or not find success. But if you if you look at the ones that were successful and have gone on to be successful SaaS businesses, aside from just having a really good product, what else did they have? Like what, what kind of differentiated the successes from the companies that didn't necessarily get the reach or scale that they were expecting? There's probably three things I would say. It's one that, that the really successful companies always had a really, the founders was had a very strong partnership between the business founder and the technology founder that they had a shared vision of what they were trying to deliver to the customer and what the product should look like and how they would then 
was there a good product market fit? So those two, and I'd say probably all the ones that were very, very successful, had that good mix of technology and business acumen and expertise and willing to learn, willing to experiment, willing to make mistakes, willing to pivot. And basically their vision was to become a SaaS vendor, not a, not a consulting organization. The other one would be um, they really understood what their customers needed. So they had a very strong, and this could come from industry knowledge or just understanding their customers really well. So they, they saw that their product would solve a problem. And really the third would have been that they had understood the commercial constraints that they operated under and understood how they, as a SaaS company, selling to businesses, how they could maximize their revenue opportunity, but also continually deliver the value to their customers that they needed. Because as a subscription model, it can turn off quicker than it can turn on. So maintaining those customers and always trying to drive innovation, and that could be just better features, you know, a better widget. It could be as simple as that to drive that the customer adoption and referenceability was was very key. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because everyone celebrates the annual recurring revenue, and um, but churn is such a, a big risk, and that that's always like one of the the key metrics that companies are, are monitoring, right? And like you said, it can fall off a cliff. Another product comes along, a better solution. You know, you drop the ball on, on your roadmap or your customer support. There's so many things that could go wrong. Then they have many balls in the air all the time. There's some of the best jugglers I've seen in my life from a business server are the ICs that I dealt with around how they could actually um, make those decisions. You know, it's like building the, flying the plane while you're building it and deciding to land at a different airport while you're on the way as well. So, uh, very, very interesting times. So what, what have you seen to be wrong from people's expectations? Um, and I ask this question because I feel that, you know, some people think that once they're on the app exchange, it's like, well, we've built it. Now they're going to come, right? It's like a marketplace. It's They see that as their opportunity to market themselves. Is that a mistake or is that like relying on that to be your your um, go-to-market strategy? Is, is, is that wrong? The app exchange is just a place people look for to find solutions. Now, the majority of the people that would look at the App Exchange would be Salesforce ad. They're not necessarily going to be the business users in the organization that uses Salesforce. And primarily, it's very CRM-centric. So the sort of mistakes that um, we would always talk to um, potential partners, what's their expectation of what the App Exchange is going to deliver to them? And I say, oh, well, we'll just, customers just buy the product of the App Exchange. Well, that's only available with a very small segment of the on the app exchanges for those really small apps that are people can pay for credit cards and it's not really around that enterprise class application. So the the dilemma they face it's build it and they will come. Well, the reality is if it's that easy to build, there's going to be many other apps like theirs on the app exchange. And we would always say to them, Have you actually seen how many other companies have the same app as you as in the app exchange? And how big are they? You know, if you were an organization that wanted to build an e-sign application for Salesforce, well, you had to compete against DocuSign and Conga, who would have had hundreds of millions of dollars of investment and 10 or 15 years in front of you. So if you can find a way to compete against them and no one knows who you are, then I'd love to know how you're going to do that because I'd package it up and sell that as a service. The realization is that are you doing this as this is your prime business model or are you doing this as you think it'll add value to your whole business strategy? Uh, if it was the prime business model, then then we would, we as a team and individuals, we would say, well, here's the reality of being on the app exchange, apart from the, the rigorous process we went through to qualify and contract and security review and bet the product. It's you have to build the right go-to-market strategy to either get people to see that you're a differentiated provider 
the app exchange is just the place where they can access your app. It isn't necessarily the leading way you market that, but it validates you as a partner in the, in the Salesforce ecosystem as an ISV. What about people that are coming in from the angle of we're a partner, but we're building a product? Like, Because you mentioned knowing your market, having the right strategy, and are you a partner or are you a, a product business? Like, Had you seen a lot of success of people doing both? Or do you think, like, is there a market for people that are doing both? So you mean as like a consulting partner then wants to be having have a product on the app exchange? Is that sort of where you yeah. Yeah, because my understanding is that's two separate businesses within Salesforce. It is. It's two separate it's part of the whole program, but there's very there's there's two separate operating models. And to be perfectly honest, the success of people doing both well was extremely limited. Driving a services business means that you can have Salesforce capability. You can have people with certifications and you go out and start to do consulting work to Salesforce customer base. Having a product company means you have to gear your business around selling a product to a customer and driving a whole revenue stream that can take 12, 18 months to start. Uh, so you can you can start a services business today, but you can't start a product business today. You have to, the product's going to solve a problem. You've got to have the technology capability. You've got to have to go to market. So it's a very, very different model. And a lot of consulting companies started to go down that path. And then they realized that that the investment was so great that it became too much to swallow, too big a pill to swallow, um, because they really would have to divert a lot of their resources. That could be earning revenue per day as consulting to be product people, uh, where they put zero revenue, get, generate zero revenue. So it's, it's a very challenging transition to make. And I've only seen one or two companies do it successfully. And I guess on the flip side of that, where it is successful is where it's done the other way. So a company builds a product and then to deliver that product, they need services and implementation stuff. Yeah. I mean, again, if the product has a good fit, the whole revenue model would be to have a lower ratio of subscription to consulting revenue because a customer does want to pay $1 for a product and then $15 for consulting. The whole value proposition is to deliver a product that solves uh, a business problem and deliver that relatively quickly. How you do that is around your implementation process and how the customer wants to solve problems. But primarily, you know, a one to three ratio would be the max you'd want to do as a SaaS business. And as you matured as a SaaS business, a lot of them then would reach out into the ecosystem and then work with delivery partners who had the skill set on the platform and maybe were well aligned by an industry approach or a, a solution approach or even a, a just a geographic approach. So how does a company understand their um, potential um, addressable market? Because if we talk about the e-signature part, right? If I'd never heard of the companies you've mentioned, the DocuSigns, the Congas, the you know, S-Docs, there's, there's a lot out there now. Um, if I'd never heard of them, I'd think, right, I've got this amazing idea. There's this huge market because pretty much any anyone could use it, right? It's It could be used by an individual. It could be used by a company. How do you actually understand, is there a market for this? Is it already saturated? Like, where where, where do you go to understand your addressable market? Well, if you if you're operating the Salesforce ecosystem, you just go to the App Exchange and see how many companies are like you on the App Exchange. That's a really simple model. Outside that, it becomes very challenging. I think Google is a great tool, and basically look at who's paying for the top ads, who's got the top ten paid ads. Wow, okay, what are those companies doing? I mean, the value of actually doing some simple desk research in regards to who's out there is it's a very cheap way to improve your business strategy. If you feel that um, you have really strong domain expertise in either a solution or an industry or a market, when you identify there's a gap going out and even doing research on that type of solution, I mean, there's no competitive advantage anymore. 
Uh, there's so many generic solutions. A more special solution means that is it high value? Is it low value? Is it solving a common problem? Is that common problem? Does that occur in the industry that you have knowledge about? You've got to build all that understanding and knowledge and know how you may have developed and then say, will this product, can we actually deliver a product? And if you built the product or building the product, is continually polling the marketplace. The concept of total accessible market and uh, actually serviceable market are very much based on your ability to scale as an organization and access to capital and where you can actually market you. So it becomes that that starting point is, is there a real market? Do people really want a product like this? Are there other competitors? Where do we differentiate? So they're all the things you need to have as opposed to, I've got this idea. Well, no one's going to buy an idea off you. And it's really going through that process. So they're, they're, they're just the basic strategic marketing things you need to do just to assess the business opportunity for your product. Because that, that must have been one of the first questions you ask a potential product company when they're looking to work with Salesforce. And um, did you find that most people had already done that? No. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. We would say, what's your business plan? Do you have one we could use? We go, no, that's that's just the wrong answer. And as part of the roles we played in the ISV team is um, in the early stage, we were trying to teach companies to be SaaS businesses. And we realized that actually that's not what we're here to do. A few examples of people that had their head screwed on really well, who understood what their limitations were. I mean, the critical thing in that sort of business is understand what your limitations are first and then deal with those and then look at your opportunities. There was lots of discussions where we would tell people that don't do this. You're just not ready. You don't understand enough about what your product needs to be, what industry you need to just go and do more research. And we'd love to talk to you again in 12 months time. Business strategy, that's a lot of all the organizations lacked. And, you know, and I, and I developed a bit of a, I suppose, a qualification methodology that I used and my team used around where do you invest your time and what sort of advice can you give? And are the people uh, in a position to take that advice? Because sometimes people just didn't really understand what they didn't know. I guess that comes back to your point around having the business mindset and the technology mindset in the founders to be successful. Because if if someone is tech, not very technology minded and builds the best product out there, it could be an amazing product. But if the business mind hasn't also guided that, then it might not be a product that's actually needed. I mean, product market fit is the core to any product business, whether it's a bottle opener or a AI platform. If it doesn't solve the problem that people are looking to identify, then it's just not going to um, just not going to go. No matter how much money and time you throw at it. Now, a um, bit of a curveball question because this is kind of talking about building off platform, and I've seen recently. Um, I'm going to throw probably the biggest that, that I've seen, um, Viva, who have you know built this incredible business, incredibly profitable business by partnering with Salesforce and building on the Salesforce platform, announcing that they're now building off platform as well. You know, that would have shocked a lot of people because they're so intertwined. Why do you think we're seeing, and not necessarily just Viva, but but why do you think a company that gets to a certain stage might consider doing that? There's a couple of answers to this question, and this is not specifically about Viva. The Salesforce platform as a solution is really good at doing certain things from a product perspective. In ISV speak, we would talk about an application that's a native Salesforce application, which means effectively 100% of the um the application is developed on the Salesforce platform. There's certain applications, a lot of successful applications, they would build what we call hybrid apps. So there's part on the core Salesforce platform and part of the platform. A lot of those off-platforms could be ones that are high algorithmic or computational requirements, scheduling, those sort of things. The Salesforce platform, Apex, Force.com, is just not built for that high-capacity algorithmic calculations. 
So a lot of companies that were successful on the Salesforce platform built hybrid apps. They built a component that was on the platform that the user would interact with and then a component off the platform that did all the number crunching. So a lot of companies like that started that hybrid model, were very successful, then realized that they are actually building a platform themselves that wasn't CRM-centric, that was a platform that did a lot of things that could actually plug in or be delivered on other platforms. And that's where you've seen organizations now that have created a solution that is now a utility that can be delivered on different platforms because they may need to deliver into different regions where Salesforce isn't. They may need to have data residency. Salesforce now is an AWS ISV. So now ISVs on Salesforce and ISV on AWS are basically dual platform. So it's not like they're, they're, they're actually, the industry has created and the technology has created a requirement for organizations to be multi-platform to service their market. So whether it's a st- Viva starts here and move there, Viva already had components of the solution of the Salesforce platform. It just becomes then the commercial aspect is around, I don't know whether other people would know, the concept of a cost to serve. The cost to serve one user on this platform is X price. The cost to serve one user on this platform is Y price. What's the commercial reality of both? And then you need to, based on the market and the industry you're selling to, you might need to adapt your solution to actually provide off both platforms. And this could be a different financial and commercial model that drives that. Hence, like around like the revenue split model to be on the app exchange. Yeah, well, the revenue model, that was the easiest model because it just became a very predictable cost base where on AWS, it's very, it's computational, it's storage, it's, it's a very, very complex model. But in some cases, the cost to serve is less on one than the other. And from a, uh, a smaller company starting up, and it's very different when you look at platforms like Salesforce and AWS. Salesforce is a SaaS platform. So you've got all the integration, workflow, task management, reporting. I sound like I'm selling the program now. You've got a platform that you don't have to build all these components together before you start building your application. Where AWS, you have to combine components and code to create your stack. So again, as organizations get to scale, and Viva's a massive organization, they have a huge amount of engineering know-how, and other companies do, and they know what's which best components they best use to drive a product to market and commercial outcomes that suit their investors and their shareholders and, and their staff. They're all the um, characteristics that these organizations need to deal with every day to see whether they can actually grow their business successfully. Which brings me on nicely to the next question, because um, you were recently in the CRO role, so Chief Revenue Officer position, which, you know, I, I see a lot in the the states, and I think it's kind of emerging here in Australia. Like, I have a few clients that are in that position, but it's not as common to see uh, CROs in, in Australian businesses as the US. Um, so for people that are listening that might not know what that role is and might not have come across it before, can you kind of summarize what a CRO does? It really depends on the size of the company, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think that the CX definition of a role is you're responsible for either a vertical function in an organization or linking together those vertical functions. So a CRO, I always look at the basic, you know, marketing mix, product, price, promotion, place. I know it's very old school, Michael Porter marketing theory, but, you know, a CRO is really responsible for the revenue flow of the business, i.e. how you get the revenue. And that's coming back to marketing, demand gen, uh, whether the revenue is sustainable and that becomes around the product. Does the product continually uh, solve the, um, the, the customer's problem? How you retain the revenue, which is around 
renewals and customer success, and then how you maximize that revenue model, which is around, is it a subscription base? How are you going to manage your life cycle of your customer? And there's all these great metrics and definitions around SaaS businesses, lifetime value, cost of customer acquisition, churn rate, if you mention attrition. So a CRO sort of um, is a person that works hand in hand, primarily, I would say, with um, obviously with the CEO, the CFO, depending on the size of the company, or the CFO and the COO, sometimes they're the same people, to say, look, you know, the end-to-end flow of revenue is linked to our product strategy, our go-to-market strategy, our investment strategy from access to capital, and our customer retention. So it could be a very different thing. In my role, I had salespeople and marketing and product management, but I wasn't responsible for the building of the product or the technology. That wasn't very much on the technology side, but it's trying to build those those functions together. So the CRO is helping to deliver on the vision and the strategy of the business where the CEO is really the person who's guiding where the business goes. The CRO with the CFO and the CRO are really trying to maximize the capital that we have to drive the revenue and uh, and attain those customers and the market share that the business needs. It's interesting that you say, obviously, the technology sat elsewhere because Salesforce is a technology platform. It might not, not necessarily be the platform that a company is building their product on, but in a lot of businesses, it still sits in the technology function. So it might report through to the CTO, CIO, business systems manager, IT manager, like will sometimes control Salesforce. That's probably more the administration of it, not the news. And yet it depends on the on the size of the organization. So you always have the administration function that primarily falls under IT. Okay. But the actual business user function from a Salesforce from a pure play CRM customer service would fall under sales and service aspects of the company. So they're the users. So you obviously have administration users and then you have super users. So from that perspective, Salesforce, because it's such an easy platform to build reports and dashboards for a business user, that's very much the business use can actually drive a lot of the a lot of the um, management of it from a, a user experience perspective, as opposed to the administrative, like who has logins and how much data we're using, those sort of things. So those functions work together, but that's more around the use of that tech. And that that's the same with any enterprise application in any organization. You'll have the business owner and the technology owner, and they'll work together to make sure that we're, they're getting the best return on investment on their spend. Yeah, and I, I think sometimes that relationship, like they're kind of fighting for control a little bit because sometimes you have the administration function still responsible for driving user adoption. And obviously the user adoption is the business side, right? Other business using the platform. How have you seen companies making mistakes around how they, what they use Salesforce for? Like what what is the purpose of Salesforce within their business? I mean, the first thing is who owns the budget? to run Salesforce, really, that's where the buck stops. So if the, if the business is paying for the use of Salesforce, as opposed to IT and it's a shared service function, then really, I mean, there's um, adoption is a key thing and adoption needs to be driven by the business. I think IT needs to support the adoption and make it as frictionless. And that could be like resetting passwords and all those lovely things that IT and admin can support. But I think some of the key things that I've seen just over time is really around, um, I mean, I've been a sales guy for a long time. I hated using a CRM until I started using Salesforce. And I realized that, okay, I've got to pull my head in. This is actually a really good tool for me to manage my business. And it's actually getting that mindset that it's not this concept of big brother. Having sales teams and sales individuals using Salesforce in a very simple manner to manage their book of business, their opportunity and their pipelines, and here are these things spoken about. 
it actually makes your life a little bit easier. Those five minutes that you spend on things you're doing every day can save you hours in the future. And as that rolls up to the to the sales management, you know, senior executives, I sort of see that the adoption starts dropping off as you go up the chain. And really all they want is, oh, could you extract that out of Salesforce and give me a spreadsheet so I can see it in the spreadsheet? And you know, and I just go, oh my God, why? <laughs> it's like, no. No, that's why you're looking at a dashboard means it's real life. It changes every moment something else changes in the system. And I think that's where a lot of the use of Salesforce starts to break down as you move up the chain, not down the chain. They both lead to each other. You know, I dealt with organizations previously when I was at Hard Hat and those things, and now we're using hundreds of seats of Salesforce, CRM, Sales Cloud for contact management. They're like, well, why would you, what, you want to know how many times someone's contacted? That's not really valuable when what you really need to know is how big's your pipeline? What deals are going to close? What deals are going to slip? And that's very easy to do by using Salesforce in quite a sim- simple manner, opportunity management or forecasting. It's not rocket science. It's just being consistent. And that's probably the biggest thing, the lack of consistency across organizations, how to leverage it. And it's not a big brother thing. It's just really, it can be a real value add for executives and layers of management to really understand that business and also have the ability to drive that understanding to the other functions, you know, CFO, product people to say, this is how our sales motions are running. These are the parts of our product that customers are really interested in. These are the types of things we need to invest in. That can all come from a simple use of Salesforce. So having worked at Salesforce, um, do they do they use it in the absolute perfect way? Like, could you describe the way that they, they use the platform to drive their meaningful kind of engagements and understand the outcomes that are most likely with their salespeople? I mean, everyone in Salesforce uses the Salesforce org. Everyone. You would hope so, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it is it is a behemoth of a org and it does everything from people managing sales to provisioning Salesforce out to customers. It is an end-to-end solution that has 60,000 plus users that basically runs the business, runs the sales and revenue part of the business. So no one will ever use Salesforce like Salesforce is using Salesforce. It is your view, your window into your own organization. And that's the best way I can describe it. You've recently um, launched your own venture around helping and guiding ISVs on their journey, and I, I've seen that you've already, uh, you know, picked up a couple of customers that you're you're helping, you're guiding, and, and helping shape their uh, continued success on on the platform. Where is it that you feel you can add most value? Like, what's the the ideal customer for you, and what can you help them achieve? I try and look at um, what I did when I was at Salesforce, but also when I was at BA and SAP. So there's really, there's a couple of cool things. It's And, and, I, and I'm focusing on the Salesforce ecosystem because that's where I've got my um, biggest biggest network. A lot of times organizations that are at the early stage, it's really those emerging guys that have now got a few, a few customers now need to sort of um, refine their business model and their operational model about being a successful SaaS company. That could apply to any ISV, but I'm realistic to say one person can't talk to every ISV there is in Australia. So it's around focusing on those ideals. They're the early stage. They've had some success and now they need to position themselves as a sustainable and a and a professional and a growth-focused organization. So what that actually means in reality is could be a simple thing is how are they using the app exchange effectively? How are they linking the app exchange with their other digital strategies around demand gen and lead gen? It could be around how are they actually positioning their product to their ideal customer? Are they using if they're a, are they using the Salesforce brand effectively? How are they positioning their product back to Salesforce? How are they understanding the language that Salesforce speaks and how it applies 
inside Salesforce, but also how it applies out to the ecosystem. And it could be just the basic things around where are they going to get the next round of funding? I'm not a VC, but I certainly understand the profile of organizations that investment companies want to look at. And a lot of that is around the metrics of them as a business, ARR and cost of acquisition and lifetime value and all those sort of things like that. So really, it's trying to help them accelerate their journey from emerging to becoming more successful and sustainable or accessing capital. And it's trying to help them accelerate that. You can't change the way customers buy, but you can find better customers to sell to and you can sell to them more effectively. So they're the sort of things I'm trying to help them do. It's interesting as well around the VC part, because I guess a lot of founders out there, many would have anticipated that at some time um, money was going to be more difficult to come by. But obviously with it happening right now, people might have had funding and raising in their mindset, but might not have anticipated it being as difficult as it is now to actually get those funds. I think it's it's always been difficult. No one's ever found money easily. <laughs> um, every IC I've ever known end up having to speak to 50, 100 potential investors. I think it's important that not every investor is the same, like not every ISV is the same. And you really need to focus on those organizations that are looking to, particularly in the Salesforce ecosystem, it's a B2B SaaS market. That's what these ISVs, they're not doing B2C. So it's a very different profile of an investor who's going to invest in a B2C company than a B2B company. And B2B is is very, very hard to do it right. So it's really around moving into a venture model, like a full-time job for a CEO. It is a full-time job. And, you know, I've heard many, many times that it's taken me 18 months. I've had 100 meetings to get the funding. But in the meantime, the business had to be run as well. So it's an incredibly stressful and time-consuming period for founders to do that. And what I've seen more recently is a lot of founders now are trying to say, well, we're bootstrapped. Now we're getting to a point where we have a level of sustainability in the, in the business. And that still can take three to five years. Now we have an opportunity to focus on our business and how the types of investors we'd like to be involved. And that maturity curve has certainly shifted as opposed to we just need money to um, make us sustainable. It doesn't matter how much cash injection you're going to get as an early stage company. If you don't get your your basic operations right and your basic go-to-market right, it doesn't matter. You're not going to be successful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. I've I've really enjoyed the chat. It's uh, been an eye opener to understand more about that ISV world, and um, and yeah, obviously wish you su- success and um, and joy in the new venture. And um, if anyone does want to reach out and uh, pick your brains, ask any questions, and um, see how you could help their business as well, where's the best place to find you? They can find me on obviously on LinkedIn, but I've got a website called uh, croxcrm.com. Pretty easily trying to play on the CRO and Salesforce. Go to the website, www.croxcrm.com. You can contact me there or just ping me on LinkedIn. Happy to have the conversation. And again, look, just happy to just have that first um, 30 minutes, like my conversation I had with you, Ben, a week or so ago. 30 minutes of good advice can save six months of pain and suffering. So (laughs) they're the sort of things that I'm happy to sort of talk to the ecosystem about. Yeah, little gems of information that you you didn't know. That's what I got in that call. So uh, yeah, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, as I said, absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks very much for the opportunity and the time and uh, happy to get involved in any conversations in the future with anyone on there listen to the podcast. So that's a wrap for this week's episode. And thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the chat. And if you did, please make sure you have subscribed for future episodes that are coming through. I would also be very grateful if you would consider leaving a review on your chosen podcast platform as five-star reviews will help us to reach more trailblazers from across the world. I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon and thanks again.